What up? What it do? Welcome to this is not that podcast. And I wanted to start off here. What it do, JoJo and the Milwaukee Bucks? How you feeling? Did you able were you able to celebrate the win this weekend? Us making it to the finals. How do you feel as a Bucks fan for over 30 years? It was a part of our identity to be like lovable losers, but we winners. We're in the finals. We have made it. Tell me how you feel about it. I can see it all over your face. You're excited. Can't wait. Oh my gosh. I am so excited. What up, y'all? Um, happy to be back with another episode. Um, and like what with such great excitement. Yes, the Milwaukee Bucks won it. I'm so excited. I can't wait for the game tonight, right? We're recording on Tuesday. So there's the first game is tonight. Um I so, okay, I didn't watch the whole game. And in fact, I haven't really watched any games this season, but I've been like paying attention very um, religiously to scores and like where we're at and having conversations, right? My my brother is a big Bucks fan and, and his kids are. So they're like always at games, messaging, texting our family thread with updates of what's happening. Um, but this last game, um, I, I did watch the second half. Uh, I was here at home with my sister and we were watching it super excited. My brother starts texting our family thread again at the win. Um, and just like with all this excitement, um, one of the big conversations we had around the game was the whole chant bucks and six. And so I was like, Oh, I got to talk to Rafi about this on our podcast, but so my understanding is that I thought it was like, oh, you know, that was the sixth game. We won in the sixth game. We want to win Bucks and Six. Like, that's where that came from. But then I started seeing all these other articles about this previous player saying, saying that and making that line famous from something else. Rafi, give me the give me the knowledge, bro. Because I was like, no, huh? definitely- I thought it was the sixth game. <laughs> So shout out to Brandon Jennings, right? So part of what I said earlier about being lovable losers was this identity. So how it works in a playoff, you have a seven-game series, and if you sweep someone, it's you doing it four games, right? So first team to win four games, win a series. And if you are a confident franchise, you say, we're going to sweep them. We're going to sweep them for But since we like been losers over the last, what, 35 years as a Buck franchise, we came up with this – whole kind of ironic bucks and six thing to like, yeah, we're going to win, but we're going to lose two games too, right? Which is something that you're not supposed to admit. You're supposed to be extremely confident. That came from Brandon Jennings. And um, yeah, so I predicted on my Facebook that we're going to win in six, but I did it kind of like, you know, Just funny, right? yeah, as a joke, I did it as a joke. Adding in yourself on the back there. Exactly. I had, you know, I got to, that's a humble brag. Uh, but uh, most definitely, I, I was shocked that we actually won in six, especially after Giannis went down. I was fully on board of us. Like, you know, I was in the group chat already making excuses like our best player wasn't available. You know, we got a good shot next year, all that type of stuff. But they won the game without Giannis, man. And that was so impressive. I can tell by your face, though, Isaiah, you just – you just can't wait to get in on here and talk about your love for the Bucks, how excited you are for them to be moving on to the next round. 
NWA champion. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not gonna lie. I've been fully transparent about this. I don't watch basketball. I watch college lacrosse, but I will say that I have been um, hearing a lot about about the um, Bucks victory and victories uh, just through the grapevine, and it's it's really. Sports is always like a kind of a centerpiece that people can kind of build identity around, you know, either individually or on a macro level, like a city or a country, you know what I mean? Uh, Usually cities or states. So it's like that part isn't surprising, but it is really refreshing and really kind of encouraging to see so many people kind of in Milwaukee take, especially in Milwaukee, take that, um, use that kind of thing that we use with sports and identity for a positive thing. I've heard a lot of like just positivity around it and a lot of hopefulness. And it's, it's just great to hear a different vibe of conversation kind of based around, you know, the city, you know, Uh, that, that, that's very, very positive. Um, I think that when the Pfizer forum, that big arena was first created. People had a lot of reservations, like, what is that a good use of all that money and et cetera. And I mean, I, you know, one good thing that came, you know, this is a good thing that comes out of that, you know? So, you know, even as kind of like a periphery kind of on the basketball scene, you know, me myself, I, I, I still kind of have this appreciation for how it um, positively, um, it warms people's hearts here. It gives them hope, you know? Let me ask you a question. Is Milwaukee a terrible city? And let me just give you a reason why I asked the question. So it was this huge controversy over the last couple of weeks. So Stephen A. Smith, he's a famous reporter with ESPN. He does this show called First Take. And him and his colleagues on ESPN was talking about how they hated the thought of the idea of having to travel to Milwaukee as part of their uh, presentation for the NBA Finals because, in quotes, Milwaukee is a terrible city. And it was a big back and forth on social media around, for one, is Milwaukee a terrible city? And two, it was a lot of people of uh, folks from communities of color who were talking around, like, we got to be real. Like, Milwaukee, especially for African-Americans, it was ranked the worst city for African to raise African-American child and for African-Americans, period. It is a terrible city in a lot of aspects for uh, communities of color. So how do y'all feel about that? What would you say? Uh, to Stephen A. Smith or the other people in the national media who calls Milwaukee a terrible city and with all the ideas of, I mean, not just the ideas, but just knowing all the stuff and how the effects of mass incarceration, uh, economic depression that people are living through here in Milwaukee and communities currently are living through in Milwaukee with all the other things like our love for the Bucks. How do y'all feel about the national media calling Milwaukee a terrible city? I, I, I personally kind of have, I mean, I have two layers of it. And, and the first layer you kind of created, Ralphie, because of the, um, you mentioned the national media. And uh, I, I just, me personally, I just kind of have a disdain, I, not for any particular outlet or anything. And, and it's kind of on a side note, but especially since Kenosha, when people have been protesting for months and months and months and barely anything violent had, 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 had happened at all, you know? Uh, uh, months and months and months, and then Kenosha happens. No, no one cares before that. And then Kenosha happens, and all of a sudden, international media, national media—they're they're bearing down on our state, you know. And they only revisit Wisconsin-related protest stories in the context of Kenosha, 
no matter what seems to happen. So that's my first frustration in terms of the national media paying attention to Milwaukee about anything, number one. Number two, if, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, number two, uh, I, I think that Lakeisha, Representative Lakeisha Myers kind of summed it up pretty good on the Assembly 4 a couple weeks ago when some Republicans were kind of trashing Milwaukee, calling it horrendous, this and that. It's like, look, Milwaukee is good enough for you to come here and make your money. And then you go back to your respective suburbs, but it's Word. good enough and safe enough for you to come here and make your money. Okay. And if we're talking about the brewers or we're talking about the, uh, the uh, bucks, Milwaukee is good enough for you to come down water street and, and have fun, make your money, do whatever it is, do that trolley thing through, uh, through uh, a Walker's <laughs> point where it's a bar and you're powering it through pedals. It's like six of you. It's all good and well to come down and have fun and do that. But the rest of the time you want to trash on it. Meanwhile, you need the city. The state needs the city uh, because it is not just this city, but Madison too, as an economic engine. You know, you, you can't sustain the state just based off of mo really most of the other places in, in the state. It just doesn't work mathematically. Because, you know, so it's like, you know, real talk, that's just how I feel about it. And that's how I feel when national media come in and kind of say anything, that's the first thing. And then people just say anything about Milwaukee, I don't know. I, I, I can go in circles. So I, I don't know, like, what, what do you think, Joe? I'm, I'm right there with you, Isaiah, right? They treat Milwaukee like, they treat us like Cinderella, yo. Um, I mean, how do, how um, is it that we're only catching national news when like when they want to trash us, right? It's, we're never catching national news for the great things that that Milwaukee has to offer, right? Like our we have a rich culture here. I think that we're super diverse. Like we have a lot of of work to do. I'll, I'll never um, not say that, but I, it doesn't stop me from praising the city. And like as a lifelong Milwaukee and born and raised here, you know my. My, my family migrated from Texas over here, um, you know, for better opportunity, for better um, life. And, and we got that, right? And so, like, to, to hear this trash talking by this ESPN person, um, by other GOP legislators, just, you know, it just really, it's upsetting, right? Because, like, as I was saying, you know, this, this state really needs, needs what happens in Milwaukee, right? Like, they need the the contributions that come out of here and yeah it's frustrating when you know they want to come and build their companies here right and not want to pay our workers fifteen dollars in a union right or you know and then and their top executives get to to go home to Brookfield or to Mequon or whatever um, yeah it's 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 heartbreaking it it makes me angry um, you know I saw a lot of memes on social media um, of folks talking about the Bucks win like yo this is for Milwaukee right like this is not for Brookfield this is not for Mequon um, because they're so quick to talk mess about us to you know throw us under the bus to trash us um, but now that the Bucks are winning oh it's oh Milwaukee right it's so wonderful and all this other stuff um, I guess it's something that I'm I don't I don't expect much from these folks, right? Like I kind of expect the trash talking because that's how it's always been for me with my experience of outsiders, right? People always want to find somebody to talk mess about it. And currently it's Milwaukee. So what y'all saying is it's Milwaukee versus everybody. <laughs> Milwaukee versus everybody. I got A you. Bit. I got you. A bit. Yeah. And look, I, the, the people in Milwaukee are awesome, are great. 
the, the what is the, the geographic area around the Great Lakes and like Michigan, that is awesome. But the institutions and the government is definitely in need of some uh, work. And we definitely uh, need to do better by our communities of color in the city too. So you can hold both. You can love Milwaukee and you can love the people of Milwaukee, but also hate how the institutions have failed the people of the city as well. So with that, we'll be right back. This is not that podcast. Hello, and we are back with uh, the This Is Not That podcast. I'm Isaiah, and uh, we uh, left off just kind of talking about a lot of things about our city, kind of in the context of sports, but just this issue of, you know, identity and um, really people's opinions and this kind of growing feeling that, you know, it feels like Milwaukee against the world right now. And right now, or at least against the state or the, you know, and right now um, we're in terms of the state government, you know, we're coming out of the uh, the uh, budget cycle and et cetera, and uh, the governor is uh, planning to sign that, uh, sign the budget. And, you know, a lot of people have a lot of, you know, there are a lot of concerns that people had uh, in terms of things that weren't included in the budget or taken out, you know. Um, some of the things that stuck out to me, I mean, uh, cannabis uh, 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 legalization to some degree, even even medical legalization, was taken out of the budget uh and the plan between uh, from like behind legalizing cannabis was to create kind of like a community reinvestment fund you know and find another way to to reinvest in 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 communities which have been especially ones which have been historically harmed by the drug war and and uh, over policing um there are a lot of water quality issues in terms of like cleaning uh uh you know things around cleaning up uh, water contamination from PFAS and, and all kinds of other things. Uh, and then meanwhile, private sector interests are coming in and pushing lawsuits to try to further basically deregulate themselves. Um, uh, you had all kinds of things that were kind of in the budget um, and taken out and usually through um, you know, Republican doing. So I was just curious, you know, in terms of the, and then also uh, recently I wrote an article about um, uh, drug overdoses and treatment centers in the area, which is actually getting more and more uh, attention just as a general issue. And I think that's an interesting conversation as well, because it's once again, a conversation about resources and how we use our resources. And the fact that if we don't have many if we don't have many resources or like many options, certain situations just can uh, continue to get worse. It seems like resources are systematically taken away in a lot of ways. So I don't know, uh, you know, like in terms of that, what uh, did you guys have any uh, thoughts or any things that stuck out to you? I'm going to paraphrase King and I hate to be that person like, let me quote King. So, but I want to do it. I'm talking about King. Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel really, uh, uh, let me keep my mouth on that. But uh, it's uh, I think he said something like uh, the nation's budget is also something around uh, shows the the nation's priorities. And by that standard, right. by that standard, uh, community scholars are very low on the priority list when it comes to this state. And as a matter of fact, it's actually antagonistic relationships between the communities of color in this in the states and even poor folks because they can't catch a hell. Poor white people are catching hell in this state too. Uh, it, it's just really disappointing that every two years 
that we go through the same process. And my job, and part of my job as an organizer, to get people organized around the budget and give them hope that things can actually change. And if we really commit to being part of the budget process and all that good stuff, that they, we can actually bring resources to our community. And it's very disappointing you know, for the last two cycles, especially since we had a Democratic governor in office, that those that hope and that potential hasn't been fulfilled, you know. And yeah, it's just uh, just extremely not just disappointing, but it's also urgent. Those resources are urgent for the communities that we live in. People want to die. People will die because of lack of resources, and for. Sadly, uh, a large part of our state are, is okay with that, you know, and that's due to the othering and dehumanization of the people here in Milwaukee and uh, in, in parts of Madison as well, that they are okay with that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm frustrated to the point where what do we do next? And I'm trying, trying to figure that out, right? Like, how do we make an impact? How we do, do we bring resources? And how do we keep people motivated in the fight uh, when we are organizing and we are mobilizing people to give a damn? And then once they get fully involved into the process, they get told F you, right? So I'm lost, man. I'll be lying to you. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to be optimistic and hopeful around this process and uh, government period. But I'll be lying to you if I, if I told you otherwise that this budget and some other things that's been going on has uh, left me uh, very cynical about what is possible. I would agree with you, Rafi, like the frustration on like, how do you keep folks motivated? How do we keep our movement and the people motivated to take action? I mean, this is the second um, time that we've had a Democratic governor, Freddie Evers, to put out a an opportunity for him to put out a budget. And his initial budget is subpar, right? Like when I think about him wanting to raise the minimum wage, right? He didn't even put in a $15 minimum, right? It was like $10 and 15 cents, right? And this is from a democratic governor. Uh, in addition to that, we've had, uh, what was it? Four assembly Democrats approve this GOP budget and three assembly um, Senate folks approve uh, this, this budget. And so like that too, right? Like we're talking, we're trying to get our movement to, you know, get out to vote and, you know, make it to the polls. And like, this is who we're asking them to vote for folks that are willing to, um, you know, side with this, these horrific cuts from the GOP legislators. Um, and yeah, it's just like, what, what are we putting out there to keep people active and to keep them wanting to fight for this? I know one of the big uh, um, talking points coming from the GOP is like that um, it's the, Governor Evers' budget is too much. It's too much money, right? Um, Governor's Ever, Governor Evers' budget includes expanding Badger Care, which would bring billions of federal dollars to this state, right? Like, why are they removing it? Why are they removing that from the budget? I was reading an article from Isaiah, one of your colleagues at the Wisconsin Examiner, um, saying that a fiscal, fiscal bureau, you know, evaluated the budget, and it says that the Demo or Evers budget is 88 billion versus Republicans at 91 billion, right? The amount from taxpayers is 37.3 billion um, under Evers budget and 38.6 billion from the GOP GOP um, presented budget. And so like these dollar amounts, I mean, they're not huge, right? And so just for these to be the talking points and the dog whistles about not wanting to expand welfare 
it, that's the part that frustrates me the most. And my bad, Isaiah, I know you were going to say something too. Go ahead, jump right in. No, I was just going to say really quickly, uh, you know, also going off what Ralphie was saying that a lot of these issues just don't, uh, there's a lot of people in the state who just don't seem to care. You know, growing, not, I didn't grow up in Wauwatosa, but going to high school in Wauwatosa, I did notice at, at least that, at least in that community, and I would presume in a, because of segregation, you know, Wauwatosa is interesting because it, it, it's a place where like the segregation is very clear and it's separated from one side of the street to the other, 60th street. You know, it's not like a far off community that's kind of isolated. It's like right there, you know, it's like you can see the segregation. And I think that when you segregate people, you people, when you segregate people off like that, people have very distinct kind of experiences and perspectives and they can't bridge that, you know, they can't, when, when, when your community always has resources, you just can't sit and imagine really what it's like to actually not have those and really what that does, you know, and, and how it's not able, what it's like to not able to pay for certain things or et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who just have a really bad case of if it doesn't affect me, I don't care, you know, and, um, not only are there conversations that need to be kind of overcome in terms of like a legislative and fiscal kind of uh, level, but on the ground level between communities, um, there has to be also more of a conversation of like trying to bridge that gap in those experiences and really getting people who don't seem to really grasp the dire nature of what a lot of people have to experience and how the situation is being systematically made worse by taking away money for education, for public transportation, every time they get a chance to do it, you know, while other areas, these resources remain untouched, you know, bridging that gap of experience, I think is a real kind of key that needs to happen. But how do you do that? I don't know. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad to say, you know, at Citizen Action, we have been building a strategy and um, organizing folks to fill out postcards to mail to Governor Evers, asking him to veto this budget. This is not the, to the standard that, that we have. Um, and so just really proud of the work that we're doing. Shout out to you know, our regional organizers all across the state that have been gathering folks at postcard events um, to, like I said, fill out these postcards to mail to Governor Evers asking him to veto this budget because it's not what we need. It's not what we want. Yeah, all that, 100% all that. And uh, I just reiterate, people are gonna die because of this budget. People will die. I mean, uh, Isaiah, you wrote that great article about uh, drug uh, treatment facilities and the lack of resources and people not even wanting in their neighborhoods. And that's going to cause someone to die. And it's that only happens when you have dehumanized a population to the point where people don't even really care about whether they die or not. And that's what that's what Robin Voss and those that side of the aisle has done. They have properly dehumanized a whole population of people in our state to the point where People don't care if they live or die. And that is a damn shame. You know, so with that, we'll be right back with the This Is Not Podcast. Hi, and we're back with uh, the This Is Not That Podcast. I'm Isaiah. And right now we have another very special guest. We have Jamal Smith of the Milwaukee's Office of Violence Prevention. Um, how you doing, Jamal? Doing pretty well, Isaiah. How you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. And, you know, we were just kind of having a conversation about, you know, 
Milwaukee identity and uh, resources and how to allocate those resources and uh, kind of how that's kind of systematically not being done right now. And I was just curious, you know, I, I, you know, the Office of Violence Prevention is a very interesting um, endeavor for the city. And I was curious, uh, I had heard about the, um, the uh, uh, blueprint for peace. And I was just curious, starting off, could you just talk a little bit about just the off the, the goal of the Office of the Violence Prevention? It, it, it's underneath the health department, I believe, and talk mm-hmm. about this blueprint for peace uh, uh, that was developed. Sure. Uh, Thank you again for this opportunity. The mission of the Office of Violence Prevention is to build partnerships that help support youth, uh, families, and communities uh, by uplifting these strategies around violence prevention. The office has been around since 2008. Uh, It was under the direction of then-director Terry Perry, um, and most of the focus was around domestic violence and sexual assault, which which are very huge issues of concern that need to be addressed clearly moving, um, then needed to be addressed and need to be addressed moving forward. Uh, however, there was a different direction that was taken under the, the, uh, the, the leadership of former director Reggie Moore in that there became a conversation focusing on the complexities of violence, right? So the idea there was to really evaluate violence from a public health lens. When most people have a conversation about violence, it's always looking at it from an interpersonal, communal, aspect, the physical act of violence itself, right? So gun homicides, non-fatal shootings, again, domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, and the likes. And those are all issues that definitely need to be addressed. However, what we don't do enough examination of is the impact of systemic violence. How have policies and procedures and institutions, systems and structures contributed to much of the decay or much of the issues and social ills within communities which lead to the levels of trauma that elevate the participation in risky behaviors, which then go to the, the decision to choose violence. That's not, that's not examined enough, right? So with the Blueprint for Peace, the idea was to engage the community. This was not a bureaucratic approach. This is not a governmental entity coming in and saying, this is what we think is best for you because we're the experts in violence. Well, who more would be an expert in terms of discussing violence and solutions to violence the people impacted by it. So having a conversation with community members who are highly impacted by violence, different system partners, um, different people in different sectors were also a part of this. So grassroots, grass tops. Raphael, I believe you were part of the conversation a few times, um, but really coming together to talk about the ways in which violence prevention strategies can be instituted from a public health lens. The way we view, vi- we view violence as being preventable, And if violence is preventable, then that means it can be treated. So if you're treated, then that means that you're giving the necessary resources in order to actually prevent that disease. You can't respond to it by bringing about more enforcement when that, in in fact, all we're doing is trying to figure out another way to actually stop that from happening in the first place. So using the blueprint as a foundational tool to really elevate the voices of the community to talk about the best ways for transformative violence prevention, violence prevention, not transactional. Transformative means that we're actually trying to come about major changes that are necessary to prevent these behaviors from happening moving forward. Let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. So in our previous segment, we were having a conversation around the budget and 
lack thereof anything that was seriously uh, in it to address the problems that happens in Milwaukee, right? Mm -hmm. And so, for one, like, how do you feel that the budget or the lack thereof of a serious budget uh, is going to affect your work, right, impact your work? And then what are some of the consequences, right, of a lack of resources given to the community, especially here in Milwaukee uh, and Milwaukee inner city? We can start with the lack of resources. You're seeing what the lack of resources looks like within our communities, right? People are acting out of uh, desperation, out of hopelessness, out of despair, uh, feeling as if their lives are obsolete, non-existent, they don't matter. And you're seeing people who are responding accordingly, mm -hmm. right? There has to be those quality investments in areas that have been dis disenfranchised for periods of time, for long periods of time. Like we're not just talking about 10, 15, 20 years. We're talking about hundreds of years where these same communities have been intentionally divested from, right? So when people continuously see that, psychologically, what does that do? It, it, it puts them in this, in this desperation mode or it puts them in this, in this space where, you know, the, the chances are elevated for risky behavior. So when you look at a budget, a budget is a moral document, right? That's what you're prioritizing, right? If I'm saying that substance abuse treatment is important, I prioritize that by investing in it. When I don't invest in it, it's not priority. That's clear, right? If we know that even according to your article, Isaiah, 544 people died of overdose in, 20, in 2020, that's a problem. So if we know, and those are just the people who passed away, we're not even talking about those who survived the overdoses. We're not talking about those who uh, may have passed away eventually in the hospital, all of that. Those are higher numbers. There's, there's got to be some investment there. And if you don't invest in the treatment of that, you know, and not just responding to it by incarcerating what you've done for years, but there's actual treatment that is being provided for people who have engaged in that activity, if you don't prioritize that, then that shows it's not important to you. So I think that's why it's key in terms of elevating. I think this is where the work of, you know, uh, that Joanna does, uh, Raphael, that OVP and other entities, the, the Roundtable, um, uh, LIT, uh, Leaders Igniting Transformation, Block, uh, you know, all these organizations, Southside Organizing Center, all these organizations that focus on civic engagement, this is where that work comes in handy because people really need to understand the need for there to be stronger engagement within politics because if people are not, if your representatives are not speaking to your desired needs, we got to have another conversation with the ballot box. I love how you are talking about like folks are just responding according, accordingly, right? We're responding to the generations of trauma um, that, that communities of color have experienced, that poor people are experiencing. Um, and I'm so glad that you brought it back to civic engagement, um, right? Like I truly believe um, that if we could get our elected officials to talk more about what our communities really need, right? Like really respond from a place that comes from like, I, I live in this community. I know exactly what is happening here, right? Because I, I had conversations with my constituents that we could we could see some real change. Um, I think the issue is, is that we don't have folks like that on the ballot, 
right? Like we are not having people that um, are actively pushing um, the blueprint for peace, right? And so I'm wondering, um, and I think we're gonna take a break in a few minutes. And so, and this might be a longer answer, but like, I'm wondering how do we get, how do we educate our community, right? Like how do we educate our community on, you know, having, um, you know, treatment centers in our neighborhoods or, um, you know, calling your elected official or what is, is the right step moving forward. And I'm wondering, Jamal, if like y'all have some sort of campaign and, and what that looks like to bring in the people to get them active. Cause I know Rafi and I we're, we're organizers, right? Like we want to make sure like, this is the clear action. This is the clear next step that people can start to take to see these, um, these approaches to, to combating, you know, like I was saying, the, the generations of trauma, these are, this is what we can do to like create some real change and get some action going. Yeah. Even though I work at uh, the office of violence prevention, I'm an organizer by heart as well. That's where I met Raphael when I was at uh, Wisconsin jobs now doing organizing around education. Uh, I think honestly, it is going to take um, the crafting of universal language and uh, regardless of what community it is, right? There's so many commonalities that are that are happening within communities of color, right? Whether it's the Hispanic community, the black community, one of the common the commonality that we have is that both both communities have been disenfranchised for long periods of time, right? So if there are organization there are organizations that are within each community. Uh, that could potentially help to bring about that collaboration, then let's do so. Remember, I just mentioned the African-American Roundtable, but then I also mentioned uh, Southside Organizing Center, right? We can bring together uh, different organizations from the various communities and have, and, and have those types of, of strategic planning sessions. And they've got to be continual, right? We can't just, every, every time we run up against a roadblock, we can't always say, damn, this ain't going to work. No. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the goal is for there to be a change civically for both communities. The process may change step by step. We may have to think think about things differently, depending how we progress. But the end of the the end goal is for there to be fundamental transformative change for each community moving forward. Yeah, that's a great answer, Jamal. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to take a quick break. All right, and we're back with the This Is Not That podcast. And uh, we're uh, here with a special guest, uh, Jamal Smith from the uh, Milwaukee Office of Violence Prevention. And, you know, Jamal, I, I, I wanted to ask you quick, you know, like, uh, especially since uh, the, uh, the uh, police brutality protests, you know, there's been a lot, even before that, actually, even before that, there was a lot of conversation in Milwaukee about the fact that, you know, the, the police in Milwaukee get nearly 50% of the budget and other departments get very, very little. And recently, Representative Lakeisha Myers mentioned that, uh, the, that the health department in Milwaukee gets like three or 4% or something like that. So I'm just curious, like two, 2%. So it's like, wow. So, <laughs> wow. So uh, I was just curious, you know, could you talk a little bit about that to about the fact that the health department which the office of violence prevention is connected to would get so little uh what you are unable to do because of that lack of funding and then if you had a little bit more what would you be able to do you know like 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 what kind of funding levels kind of 
could we see to kind of help those departments and that office? Yeah, um, right now the Office of Violence Prevention is a team of seven, right? And what we're asking is, what's being asked of this office is to conjure ways to create opportunities for violence prevention with seven people, right? And then when you look at, in contrast, there's over, over or close to 1,700 rank and file police officers who's asked to address crime and safety within the neighborhoods in a city of nearly 600,000. And we see how that's going, right? So essentially there has to be a, a re-engaging of the minds in terms of how we are prioritizing funding. Because when you think of the health department, not only is the Office of Violence Prevention in here, food inspection is a part of, of the health department, the lead department, <laughs> where obviously there's been uh, years of conversation around lead abatement services and the likes. Uh, medical labs uh, have been are a part of the health department. We have health clinics across the city. Those are a part of the health department, right? And then when you look at the, the, the pie chart of breaking down the budget and you see that 67% goes to public safety, 50% for police, 17% from fire department. So you're asking the other city departments to, to divvy up 33% of the funding. That's tough. Right, that's, that's damn near impossible, right? So, um, you know, the idea is if there were an opportunity for, for funding, we're talking about capacity building. So then we can have someone on Office of Violence Prevention that's specifically catering to, you know, op opioid services, right? And, and helping to bring together all of those partners uh, to talk about the better ways for, for, for strategic planning around, you know, opioid services. We have the MORI, program, obviously, uh, and the health department is a part of that, the mobile was the, uh, the mobile overdose response initiative. The health department is a part of that. But, you know, again, that's a response in terms of two, two firefighters with two peer supports to go out and provide treatment, which is a great idea. But how much more is happening after that initial response and treatment? How much is coordinated there? How much of a, a tracked plan do, the, do those who are involved in the treatment have, which then can be, you know, can help them in short, medium and long term. That requires investment. You know what I mean? Like I mean, the same thing when we talk about uh, an unarmed response, there's a diversion task force that was just created by uh, Alderwoman Shantia Lewis, Alderwoman Malele Coggs and Alderman uh, Nick, Nick Kovac around uh, researching other uh, programs that look at diversion from alternative, diversion alternatives to law enforcement when it comes to mental health services and the likes, but that's gonna also require investment. So, you know, part of it is, you know, thankfully we saw, we, we see this American Rescue Plan funding that's happening right now, but the question is, is that how is that sustainable, right? So, because the allocation, the first allocation happens this year, and then the next allocation of the ARPA funds is next year. Right, so how, how do you make sure that in allocate, in, in reallocating those funds, that there are programs that are sustainable, that's going to come from public officials making crucial decisions that impact communities, not their political cronies. But that also requires us as a community to demand that there be action and investment within our communities because they only do what we allow, let's just be honest. They do what we allow many times within the political arena, 
right? Everybody used to talk about uh, this increase within the LGBTQ community and seeing all of this information that's coming out, all of these different sessions and classes and and you know, people are becoming more aware about the LGBTQ community. Well, you want to know why that happened? They organized. They organized, they mobilized, they invested in it, and you saw the, the effects of that, right? So there has to be that same mindset in terms of, of how we're building a broad base focused on uh, the, engage, the civic engagement and thus the inequities and disparities that have particularly in, uh, affected uh, communities of color that have affected women, that have affected the, the disabled and the likes. We have to build that base in order for there to be a stronger engagement and a stronger mobilization and an effort and a movement that gets results uh, that we need for our respective communities. So you had a unique perspective over the last year and a half when it comes to COVID, right? And COVID, we're not, uh, I see you laughing, but I, I want to like get your, because again, you have a unique outlook because you've been on the ground at grassroots level dealing with the impact of COVID and the lack of an actual governmental strategy of how you actually go about doing it. So what have you seen? Um, what has the impact of COVID has had on Milwaukee that you've seen from your grassroots level? Brought about, you see the rise that has happened within non-fatal shootings and gun violence, right? You saw an elevated level of, of, of anxiety, elevated level of anger, elevated level of frustration. If COVID didn't do anything else, it exacerbated the disparities that were already there. Mm. Right. So now you saw if there was already a high level of unemployment and underemployment in black and brown communities, COVID did nothing but take those numbers to another level. And guess what? And the alternative to that was an infusion of more guns. We saw 40 million guns were sold across this country in 2020. That's 10 million more than 2019. And that's the illegal selling. I mean, the legal selling. We're not even talking about the black market, right? So, and then the, uh, the message became clear of when COVID hits, make sure you protect yourself because people are gonna be in more of a desperate situation, which is gonna bring about a rise in crime and you need to protect yourself. So everybody went after guns. Everybody got a, gang, a bunch of ammunition. Everybody got all kinds of weapons. Now you're seeing this huge influx of, of, of guns throughout all of our communities. And they're being given to people who are already on high anxiety, high anger, high frustration, high stress, right? So remember when, when COVID first hit Milwaukee, we saw a mass shooting like two weeks after that, mm. right? It was like five people killed. And in a, in a residential home, I'm not even talking about the Miller Coors thing, right? So that happened immediately. This, this was a quick turnaround and people were on high alert, right? So if, if nothing else, like I said, we can look at the impact of COVID from an angle of saying this did nothing but really truly show the disparities that exist for, for, for poor people, for people of color um, and the fact that we're still talking about ways to just put a, a Band-Aid over an open wound is not only counterproductive, it's, it's offensive. But that's still the conversation that's happening today. And, and I would say, like, you know, our movement is, is fairly young, right? Like, I know that these, are, these things we've been fighting for for generations. Um, but, like, this strategy on, you know, moving around funds, right? Like I know folks don't want to be saying, um, they, they don't understand like divesting from the police and like what that really means. 
And it's something that I feel like we've been having on the, having a conversation around on this podcast since the start, right? Like we're four episodes in, but we've talked about the lack of creativity and how like um, public safety doesn't always equal law enforcement, right? More police officers, but that is the, that's the missing link, right? Like we see folks in our community believing that that is the answer. You know, like they say things like, oh, I called the cops and it took them forever to come. So that means, you know, I need more cops, right? Like there is a lack of education in our community. And and I feel like that that's been the general um, consensus of what you've been saying, Jamal, is like, we need to get that education out there. We need to start talking to people. We need to be actively having this um you know, collective, uh, collective conversation and how we, we speak about these issues and how we promote public safety. And so I just, I just want to like agree with you and thank you for the work that you're doing because it takes a lot to unlearn, right? Like it, it takes a lot to teach folks, but it takes a whole lot more to like unlearn things. And I think that that's what our community is doing right now. We're in the process of unlearning what it means to achieve public safety um, and we're so desperate for it. Uh, we're falling back into like these traditional ways of constant of what public safety has been defined at and defined as. Um, and so I just commend the work that you're doing. I'm super grateful to have you on this show, um, talking about your work and looking forward to ways that we can collaborate and, and keep pushing the needle. Sounds good. Uh, I'm definitely honored to have been here. I see we're, we're kind of running out of time. But the final thing that I want to say is people have to understand that police are looked at as an occupying force, right? To, to me, it's kind of similar to seeing metal detectors at school. That doesn't make the students feel safer. That actually makes them feel a little bit more frightened because what is happening in my school that we need metal detectors? The same thing when it comes to seeing an increase in police. So if there's an increase in the quality of life, investment in quality of life, there's less of a need for police, which then alleviates that level of stress and fear and anxiety and angst that people may feel from seeing police, but then also seeing that there's more comfort within their own neighborhoods. We definitely have to re-engage. We have to get people to reimagine public safety so that we can have a better opportunity for reinvestment and, and redefining what public safety looks like. So Jamal, I know we talked about a lot of different things today, but I also want to make sure we leave the people with some type of hope, right? Because it's kind of hard to like engage people and it's just like, you know, it's, it's terrible out there. It's shitty out there. And you want to organize? You know what I mean? Like, so I do want to hear from you about what's giving you hope and what are some of the things that people actually organize around uh, to give them hope and actually get involved. Oh, gosh, we are we are in the largest social justice movement period that we've ever seen. Right. This is a global. This is a global issue. Right. When people were protesting in response to George Floyd, uh, George Floyd murder, uh, Breonna Taylor murder, the Ahmaud Arbery murder, people were responding to the impact of systemic violence. Right. So then what that's showing me is people are becoming more aware of how systems impact communities, which leads to the behaviors of engagement in violence. Right. But so there's a root cause of how we got to the point that we are in. People are showing now that they're willing to engage in the conversation to alleviate the root causes that lead to that violence. So I would say that, uh, you know, there can be uh, movements more so around. I mean, there have already been movements around police brutality, 
but we need to start bringing back the movements around affordable housing, right? Um, you know, especially within, when you look at uh, the cost that it takes, you know, the average person has to make almost $20 an hour to just have a, a sustainable housing in the state of Wisconsin. And that's just a two bedroom apartment, right? Now imagine the majority of the city of Milwaukee is underemployed. The last Alice report, which is asset limited, income constrained and employed showed that 63% of the city of Milwaukee was underemployed. So clearly they're not making anywhere near $20 an hour, which is why we're seeing the housing crisis that we've seen, which also leads to a lot of the engagement within behaviors with, that we've seen leading to the violence as well. So there's movement around housing, the housing crisis. There's movement around, obviously, uh, there needs to be more movement around uh, opioid addiction, but using that as a rehabilitative service, not an enforcement or a punitive uh, uh, decision. Uh, there has to be movement around quality affordable health care. There has to be movement about, around uh, mental health services. Uh, poverty, right, is, is a major issue, right? But there are, there are people who are becoming more aware of it because we've seen so much of this engagement that when people started to, to come out and talk about just this one part of the system with policing, they started to also discuss more about the other ills that were happening within the uh, systems as well and, and how those violent practices have come into play. So I think now we are in the most prime time and most prime opportunity because there is global language around violence prevention from a systemic level. There's global language for that. So this is the, I think this is a better time than any for there to be stronger movement, uh, movement building on prevention work. This death, this is a better time than I've ever seen. Completely agree. This is no better, no better time than now to get active, y'all. Thanks so much for being on the hold show, Jamal. On, 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 um, we gotta, we gotta, we got one last thing, right? Because we started this with the Bucks, right? <laughs> we, we started this about the Bucks. This is, you know, Jamal. I'm 36. I don't know how old you is, but I like. As a person that's been a Bucks fan over 30 years, this is unprecedented where we're about to go to, right? We about to – the game <laughs> is a night, right? The game is a night. So we can't just leave you uh, not coming on our podcast and not talk about the Bucks in this moment. So how are you feeling? And uh, what's your prediction for the finals? Oh, I'm sticking with the mantra, Bucks and six. Um, Bucks and, and six. I'm sticking with the Bucks and six. That's just sad. Yeah, and then uh, I, like I, just, I just saw that uh, Giannis was upgraded from doubtful to questionable, and now they're saying it's a game time decision. Yeah, we'll yes, see. I mean, that's a definite, that's a game changer if he comes back. But my hope is if he comes back, that he still uh, he he finds himself within the way that they played the last two games against Atlanta. Uh, in terms of really being attack attack heavy and and team oriented, if he engages with that with his skill set, it might be Bucks at five. Who knows? But I'm definitely oh, sticking Bucks and six. I think I think the Bucks are going to come out uh, NBA champions this year. And I'm 40, so I never thought I would see this either. <laughs> uh, you know, you get all the stories from your parents that talk about 1971, and I'm like, I don't care. I wasn't there. <laughs> so the, <laughs> so the fact. That I'm now able to see the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA Finals. Like you said, man, this is unprecedented for sure. I love it. Bucks and six. I love it. Bucks and six. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. This is a This Is Not That podcast. We'll see y'all in two weeks. Peace. Later.